The demand for electricity is based on the consumption of the electrical grid at any given time. The supply of electricity is based on how much energy is being produced or stored on the grid at a given time. Because these sources of supply and demand fluctuate rapidly, but somewhat predictably, energy markets present profit opportunities for financial market traders. Min Dang and Corey Noon are engineers with Advanced Microgrid Solutions, a company that builds software to help traders capture better opportunities in the energy markets. Min and Corey join the show to talk about how their company builds and deploys machine learning models for market prediction. We discussed data infrastructure, machine learning model deployments, and the dynamics of the energy markets. Min Deng and Corey Noon. Guys, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. So you both work in engineering at AMS, and AMS is a company that builds technologies around trading energy assets. So I'd like to start at just a high level explaining why there is a market for trading energy. Corey, can you explain why there is an existing energy market? Absolutely. In California, and I guess across the United States, energy is, is traded and served by an independent system operator, or ISO. And their responsibility as an independent operator of the system is to forecast and schedule generation. So in order to do that, they basically take in bids, both from consumers and generators of electricity, and optimize a dispatch schedule accordingly such that the grid is stable. And what that essentially means is that supply always equals demand. So the way in which they do that is they collect bids that represent the willingness to uh, sell energy into the market at various horizons. So there's a, a day ahead energy market, there's a real time energy market, and a host of ancillary services that essentially keep the, the energy flowing at all times, 24 hours a day. Can we think of the energy market as something similar to the stock market? I think most of the listeners know that the stock market has lots of trades and exotic derivatives and all kinds of things like that. Is it that kind of pacing? Oh, absolutely. The only difference is that the financial traders get to go home and sleep at night. Uh, energy trades 24 hours a day. Can anybody trade energy or do you need to be an accredited investor? So anyone has an energy asset that is valued by the market. Uh, so whether you're a commercial industrial consumer of electricity and you want to participate in a demand response program, that is a program run by a load-serving entity that values your ability to reduce consumption over a period of time, or you're a large project you know, capital financier and you're looking to get into you know, renewable storage at renewables or storage at the grid level, that is all valued by the market. Yeah, so to give more context there, you can participate either on the generation or consumption side. So if you have an energy generating asset, you can participate on that side. Or if you're an energy consumer, you can participate by um, lowering your energy needs during certain times. Describe some of the tools that are used by people trading in the energy markets. So forecasting is, is a common theme that occurs in both energy and financial markets. It's the ability to uh, quantify uncertainty around future events. So when we talk about trading, we typically talk about uh, energy traded intervals. So it could be everything down to a five-minute trading interval up to potentially an hour. Um, energy generators are selling blocks on the market. So forecasting and being able to assess the volatility of the market is extremely important. 
And what are you guys working on at AMS? What is the product and who is it for? So we have a couple of different products, everything ranging from the scale at which I was speaking initially, the commercial industrial load scale. So everything greater than typical residential uh, load. So a lot of your list of listeners might only have exposure in energy markets by paying their electricity bill. And typically those rates are based on like, dollars per kilowatt hour, so a fixed energy charge. A lot of commercial industrial consumers of load pay not only based on that energy charge, but based on a demand charge. And that demand charge is proportional to the maximum power that they use during their billing month. So we have products that manage that demand charge throughout their billing month, as well as products that can trade directly at the grid scale into energy markets via the ISO. Can you unpack that in, in, in a little more detail, like paint more of a picture for who is the end user of your technology and, and I guess how they are using it? So we have a few different products right now. Two of our main users are our commercial and industrial companies, and then also energy generators. On the commercial and industrial side, we do what Corey was saying, uh, demand charge management for that customer. So AMS started off building huge storage systems. And with that, we found that with a byproduct of actually needing to install big storage systems for commercial and industrial customers, such as um, a Kaiser or something local, Cal State schools, we needed to build a huge software platform to manage the operations uh, of that storage system too. So what we would do is you know, gather a bunch of data from that specific site, run a bunch of forecasts on you know, how we expect the load profile to look for that building, you know, pump that through a huge optimization and figure out what's the best way to use the battery to charge or discharge pretty much uh, in near real time. Our other customers on the generation side, we provide a trading platform to help um, energy gen- generators bid energy into the market. We do that, again, by you know data science, deep neural networks, forecasting uh, market prices, also, again, running that through a huge optimization. And then, you know, making recommendations on uh, what's the best way to bid energy into the market for the best financial outcome. So these energy traders that you're catering to with with one of your products, these are traders that work at energy generation companies or do they work at like trading companies like Goldman Sachs? Energy trading companies, as of right now, a lot of them are uh, renewables companies. Um, there are also some utility companies, uh, of which we can't name at this time, but we also are working with some utilities trying to apply our technology to, to overall optimization and trading all of their energy assets. Okay, cool. And so before we get into the technology, can you just take me inside the life of an energy trader? Like, what do I want out of my technology stack? And you know, am I like spending my day looking at charts and and you know planning how I want to bid on various types of electricity, or am I doing like fundamentals research? What's the mix between algorithmic trading and manual trading? Take me inside the life of an energy trader. Yeah, so that's that's very much a function of the technology that they're trading, so the, the underlying generation source. Uh, as well as the market that they're in. So if you're a traditional energy trader that is uh, selling fossil fuel-based electricity generation on the market, the algorithm by which you value your product is going to be with long ramp-up times for your generation source, you typically value it slightly higher than your marginal cost to produce that electricity. And then when the market clears above that level, you make money. And when the market clears below that level, 
you just don't generate electricity. Uh, it's a little bit more sophisticated when you're starting to talk about intermittent generation, such as wind and solar. And then it gets even more sophisticated when you're talking about battery storage, which is uh, our expertise here at AMS. So batteries can represent both the generation source as well as the load and can, can turn on and off very quickly. We're introducing a lot of domain-specific discussion here, so I would like to transmute what we're talking about into terms that just regular software engineers and data scientists can understand. Can we discuss a, a certain data set that is flowing through this system that you are building machine learning models on top of? Like, let's let's focus on a specific data set. What, what would be a good exemplary data set that we could talk about? Yes, yeah, so when we typically train our machine learning models, we're feeding in historical electricity prices as well as the state of the grid at that time. Uh, so for example, we might want to know what the interconnector limits are. So how much energy can we flow across certain portions of the grid as well as what the flows were at that time? Maybe there are some other exogenous factors such as weather. Was it a particularly warm day that could have resulted or explained a price spike in electricity? Where do those data sets come from? Uh, so there are open data sources, uh, it, but it also varies significantly based on the market that we're interested in. So, for example, in Australia, they make all of their market trading data public. So it's, it's very easily accessible, whereas for most markets in the United States, that data is proprietary. So describe how these different data sets make their way into your infrastructure. How often are you pulling them from... You know, whether it's a REST API or some antiquated FTP server that you're getting the the uh, energy data from, give me an overview of the of the process of pulling in that data into your infrastructure. Sure. We like using a data pipeline management tool called Airflow. And uh, we have a direct database connection with a replica that sits in Australia that has all of the real-time market data provided by the market itself. I see. So you're querying their database, and is this? Are we mostly focusing on the on the Australian energy market for the purposes of this conversation? Sure, we can do that. I think the Australian market presents some some unique challenges. One of which is that they clear on a five minute basis. And that is the only time horizon in which they're interested in. So as I spoke to earlier, in California, there are multiple different markets at different time horizons. So the ISO will schedule or dispatch energy on a day ahead market based on what they anticipate load will be and then make fine tune adjustments real time on an ancillary services market. Uh, whereas in Australia, every five minutes, they're looking at the state of the market and then procuring energy based on that. So yeah, I'm I'm happy to talk about Australia. I think that presents a, a unique use case. Yeah, sure. And and let's continue to to just talk a little bit about the, the the top level, just getting the data from that database connection. So are you just relying on using their database and just making you know queries to that database all the time, or are you like tailing the logs of that database and and replicating it over to your data store? So for Australia, any of the data provided by the market operator, there is a replicate database that we periodically, you know, pull data from and then replicate it into our system in AWS. 
We also gather some data specifically from the customer, from the generator. What we do there is we'll put um, a gateway on their site that say the specific customer has a bunch of wind turbines. With that gateway on site, we'll gather telemetry data from that site as needed, and then we'll push that uh, to our system in AWS. And then regarding the, the mechanics of pulling the data, like I said, we, we do enjoy using Airflow, but we, in terms of the data storage internally, we, we also use technologies like Cassandra and Scylla to, to manage our own data stores. Cool. So you use both Cassandra and Scylla. <laughs> well, in, in production, we use Scylla, but we do local development using Cassandra. Got it. So if, if I understand, Scylla is like a faster version. It's a more performant version of Cassandra. And Cassandra is a is a masterless key value storage system. So why is Cassandra a good fit? For, well, I guess reiterate what this use case is for Cassandra and, and why Cassandra is a good fit. We store all of our time series data in Cassandra or Scylla. Um, Scylla is basically just an open source Cassandra-like implementation that's very performant compared to Cassandra. Since we store a lot of time series data, going with Scylla you know, has increased our performance. And for our use case, since we're pulling that data for forecasts fairly frequently, in our case, you know, milliseconds count, uh, you know, we had to go with Scylla just to get the performance levels that we needed uh, to be able to generate forecasts quick enough to make sure that we can create bids in time. And why is why is Scylla a good fit over? I mean, there are these custom time series databases. You have InfluxDB, you have TimeScale DB, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Why is Cassandra or Scylla a good fit over one of these custom time series databases? I'll have to admit I can't speak very well to to all the options on the market, but what we have found internally is that our application is unique in the ability that we're able to segment a lot of our our data sources, uh, which presents a a nice opportunity to architect around that natural segmentation based on, say, assets or, or when the intervals were created. We also generate a lot of data in batches. So we're able to, when we create a forecast for what we believe the the future of the market looks like in terms of prices, we generate multiple percentile streams. So in every forecast update, and since we're talking about the Australian market, that occurs every five minutes, we're generating a ton of data on a five-minute basis, but all of that we want to consider as a single batch process result, and that, that fits very nicely in this key value store. So the data from the Australian energy markets that you're getting from that, that I guess, some third-party data provider in Australia, you're storing that in the same database that you're also storing this data that's getting ingressed from from wind turbines in Australia? Is that what you said, Min? Actually, it, it's stored in... So we not only use Scylla, you know, we also have Postgres also. So depending on, you know, the type of data, if it's relational data, we'll put it in the standard, you know, SQL data store. For the time series data, we will put it in Scylla. And just to get a little more color on that, that ingress process, so the gate, you said you have, you put some kind of gateway on the physical wind turbine system so that you can get the data from the wind turbines. What's the process of of ingressing that data? Because, I mean, if you have these time series from the wind turbines that are getting generated where the wind turbines are... You know that data is getting fed into the the gate that gateway that you have on the on the premises of the wind turbines at some interval, and then you have to pull that gateway at some interval. And so I imagine there are these micro batches, or maybe you could stream the data, or you could take really big batches. 
What's your process for ingressing that data? Uh, so we put the gateway on site, um, and usually, you know, on that, uh, if it's a wind farm, you know, they would have some sort of other data aggregation device. Um, so with that device, that will communicate, you know, down to the individual turbines or whatnot. Uh, and there's usually an integration between, you know, that data aggregation device and our gateway. Once the data gets to our gateway, we send it up to the cloud in, in micro batches. Uh, we want the data fairly frequent, so we send it about every five minutes or so. Great. Okay, so we've covered the ingress process a bit, and now we can imagine that on your AWS instances, you've got, or you're on your AWS database, managed database situation, you've got Scylla with some data in it, you've got some Postgres with some data data in it, and we can start to do data engineering on top of these things. Know that we want to build some machine learning models with these data sources. So what kinds of machine learning models do we want to build? So as I said, uh, the primary use case for machine learning uh, here at AMS is in time series forecasting. So we're forecasting namely electricity prices if we're talking about uh, grid scale assets, but if we're also talking about demand management at a customer's facility, then we're also forecasting potentially not only their building load, uh, so the electricity that we anticipate they'll be using for the upcoming, say, week. In some cases, we also forecast on-site generation. So if there's a co-located solar farm, for example, we'll want to also forecast the output of that solar farm. In this kind of application, it seems like time horizon is a really big deal because uh, I guess you want to make forecasts you know, based off of some specific time horizon, like maybe you want to make a forecast for how things are going to change in the next hour or some ceiling that something might hit in the next year, for example. So how does time horizon fit into the way that you build models? Yeah, definitely. So there are a couple scales of interest here at AMS because we're focused primarily on energy storage, uh, battery systems, that's a, a finite capacity resource. So we would need to schedule, we have to have an estimate for what we believe the market will go for the upcoming, say, 24 hours and plan a charging and discharging schedule around that those market prices. But then at the for the purposes of bill savings for our host customers uh, that elect to have these batteries installed on their property, they're paying their electricity bill based on a monthly peak demand. So the time horizons of interest for us are typically in the 24 hours to one month range. Take me through the process of training a machine learning model for predicting, for example, the price of, I don't know, a specific type of battery storage? What, what would be a good prototypical use case, a prototypical machine learning model that you built? Sure. So if, if I were to take battery storage in South Australia, batteries, as I said, can act as both a generator and a load for the market. And it can participate in up to nine different tradable instruments. Uh, if, you, if you want to take the finance analogy, representing both energy as well as ancillary services that you know, keep the grid resilient at all times. Uh, so in a typical use case, what we'll want to do is forecast a distribution. And, and this is kind of a, a critical point is that it, we're not just forecasting point estimates, but we want to have an understanding for what the volatility of the market looks like for the upcoming 
say, day for each of the nine products so that when we take those probabilistic forecasts and we feed them into a stochastic optimization framework for determining when to charge and when to discharge uh, that hedges against that volatility, uh, we can do that and, and make the optimal decision as to which products to bid into and at what levels. So a typical bid for an individual product, it represents 10 price quantity pairs in Australia. So you might say, I'm willing to sell you 50 megawatts of power during this five minute interval and I'm willing to do it at $5. And I may also say at $10, I'm willing to sell an additional you know, 10 megawatts of power. So a bid file for that five minute interval uh, represents 10 of those price quantity pairs. So we have an optimization engine that takes in what we believe the forecast for all the eligible products that asset can bid into and then determine how to allocate its resources accordingly for the upcoming 24 hours. What tools are you using to train that model? So we're currently using an open source library called TensorFlow. And describe how data makes it from your DrusillaDB instance and your Postgres instance into TensorFlow and like how you're using that and are you training it offline or are you like continuously training it and updating the model? Give me some overview for the for the construction and the ongoing updating of the model? Yeah, good question. So we currently train the model offline. Uh, we do continuously retrain it roughly say, every anywhere from a weekly to monthly cadence. We extract the data from uh, Scylla. We construct feature sets from that uh, raw data. We then normalize the data and then that represents a single process which we then persist to that data source so we can always rerun a training model against that exact same data source. We then leverage an AWS service called SageMaker for uh, spinning up instances that are capable of, of training on, on a GPU. You can spin up many parallel instances for the purposes of, of tuning these neural networks. And then we, we deploy the trained models to endpoints via that same services capabilities. Is SageMaker... So I've heard heard of AWS SageMaker. I know it, it is an AWS tool that helps you with machine learning models. What exactly is it doing? Does it help you with allocating resources to those machine learning models? Or, or what else does AWS SageMaker help you with? It's, it's primarily a flexible resource that allows us to spin up GPU-backed EC2 instances on demand. So it's like a scheduler tool is, is mostly what it's useful for. Yes, there are some hyperparameter tuning tools that are based into it that allow for very efficient search over a hyperparameter set that allows you to, to refine your models. But for the most part, it, it's allowed us to circumvent having on-premise resources invested in uh, capital-heavy GPU hardware and then just push that all to the cloud and do all of our training remotely. We've done some coverage of a tool called Kubeflow, which is like a Kubernetes TensorFlow integration system that came out of Google. Have you looked at Kubeflow at all? No, we haven't yet. Uh, we, we are interested in uh, distributed training as, as well as those sort of resource assignment tools, but uh, we haven't looked into that yet. We haven't found a use for it. Right. So I guess is the use case for SageMaker, it's like you've got, you want to do this TensorFlow training on a periodic basis. Maybe you want to do it 
once a month, maybe you want to do it once a week. And whenever you do that, it requires spinning up a large number of GPU-backed EC2 servers. So you use SageMaker to be kind of your proxy into the, the scheduling resources side of things. Yes, it just represents a very flexible resource. So is, for example, if you have a training job that takes four hours and you deploy that training job to SageMaker, it will allocate that, that resource for you and then automatically tear it down after the training is complete. Now, if you wanted to run multiple jobs in parallel, if you were to invest in the, the hardware on-premise, you would have to buy multiple GPUs. Whereas with SageMaker, it'll happily allocate more GPUs for your distributed job. So it's, it's taken, it's abstracted a lot of the, the work of deep learning and allows us to focus on the model development. What are the other AWS services that you use? <laughs> a little bit of everything. So, you know, on top of... You know, all of this data forecasting and optimization, we build web apps on top of this to expose all this information through fancy GUIs to our customers. So everything from standard EC2, ROP53, you know, standard VPCs, all the networking, a little bit of everything, actually. Yeah, Elastic Beanstalk, S3, uh, you name it, we probably we touched it. I was watching your presentation that you gave at reInvent, and there were some services that I was not familiar with. There's something called AWS Chalice. What is AWS Chalice? So Chalice essentially allows us to deploy a a Flask-like endpoint that was initially serving as a way in which we were able to pre-process samples for inference deployed neural network model. So what that means is that basically we could hit an endpoint and say, give me the latest forecast for a region in Australia and it would go collect the, the necessary information to construct a sample. So maybe what was the, the recent price activity, what is the interconnector flow, everything that, that we use as explanatory features in our forecasting model, construct that, do the normalization, and then hit the endpoint that is assuming that you've already constructed that sample in the same format that you provided the training data, and then return wow. the forecast. Uh, exactly. It is pretty exciting. So that's like a tool for grabbing a sample set of data points so that you can have an input into the model. Because like you can train this model, but in order to have it do something on a given, you know, in, on a given day, you're going to need to uh, dip your chalice into the uh, lake of data and pour it into your model. I would characterize it as a little more general purpose. It is comparable to like a Flask sort of endpoint, but AWS has made it easy to deploy that server and access it remotely on AWS. I see. Can you explain it in a little more detail? So like you, you deploy Chalice to to where exactly? And, and, and how do you just walk me through that use case in a little more detail? Sure. It, with AWS Chalice, and I have to admit, we, we currently don't use this, but it was, it was really good for prototyping purposes essentially define an API in a set of routes that you can then deploy in a single line, a single command line, and it will automatically deploy that endpoint to Amazon API Gateway and AWS Lambda. So all of your requests are essentially now Lambda functions that you can access externally. Yeah, okay. so, so just a high-level overview, you know, it's a quick and easy way to deploy an application that uses their API Gateway and Lambda. So you can quickly bring up endpoints that need to, you know, pull data from a backend data source pretty quickly. They're, you know, internally and externally accessible. And you mentioned 
Lambda. What are some ways that you're using AWS Lambda? So unfortunately, we currently aren't using a whole lot of Lambda at this time. Yeah, we use it a lot more for for prototyping, um, not much in production. Why is that? Uh, there are some resource limitations around both Chalice and Lambda. So your deployment package on Chalice is, is limited to something like 50 megabytes. So when you start to wrap up all of your you know, Python dependencies, it's very easy, you know, you, you pull in a, a SciPy and a NumPy and you're at your 50 megabytes already. Um, but then there are also resource limitations on Lambda. So I know they've recently increased request timeouts, but I believe it was at the time I was looking at it five minutes. So for some tasks, it just doesn't fit within our, our use case. Yeah, and I think Lambda is great for some use cases, but for this specific one that we need, reason meaning for prototyping and whatnot, but in, in production, those APIs that we build, they're a little bit bigger, a little bit heavier, um, and then also they're frequently used too. So we found that you know if we just you know build APIs and deploy them uh, to a container on Kubernetes, it works just as well. So just to return to an example that grounds what we're talking about here, you might be trying to build a model that predicts price of a certain type of energy, let's say a kind of battery storage, like I need some battery storage to store energy or to get energy from the battery. And you're trying to predict price on that so that people can trade, they can buy and sell energy assets based off of those predictions of price. Because if the price is going to go up, maybe I want to uh, buy some energy in advance of that price increase. And if the price is going to go down, maybe I want to sell. Is it, it? Do I have the model and the the use case right? Yes. Like I said, it's not only the, the point forecast that's of interest. There are some unique challenges in energy markets, uh, namely that energy resources are becoming increasingly flexible and there are shorter trading intervals. There's more intermittent resources on the grid, such as solar and wind, that necessitate not just that point forecast, but a, a good understanding of where the distribution is so we can develop strategies that, that hedge on uh, potential price spikes or dips. So the output of a model, just to ground this, would be a multi-period ahead forecast. So if we're talking about a five-minute interval, maybe you want to forecast 24 hours into the future, we're generating 288 points. And then not only are we generating 288 points for a single point forecast, but we're also generating a forecast for each quantile. So what that represents is we, we have 288 lines that represent what's the most likely outcome. That's kind of our 50th percentile. But we also generate, say, 60% and 70%, all the way up to 99%. So we've got this distribution captured by all of these quantiles ranging from 1 to 99%. Uh, and then we can develop trading, trading strategies that hedge against that whole range of, of scenarios. Was it tricky to get these models trained in a way that avoided overfitting, maybe overfitting to to certain section of time that you were sampling from? Or what was the process of training that first model and, and getting a sense of confidence that the model was not overfitting or underfitting? So in time series forecasting, it, it's very common to split your historical data into three data sets, a training data set, and then what chronologically follows would be a validation data set, and then after that, a test data set. So the training data set represents uh, the, the largest amount of samples that you're exposing to this model training process. 
And then when you want to, say, optimize the design of your neural network, you may iterate over a few different architectures and then evaluate the, the accuracy of each architecture on this withheld validation data set. Once you've arrived on what you believe to be the best model architecture, then you can finally test it on, on the third data set. So you're withholding data at each one of these stages. So you're fairly confident that by the time you've tested on your most recent test data set, that should be the accuracy that you should expect moving forward in once you deploy this in operations. This is an application of deep learning. And I'd like to disambiguate what makes this use case deep. Can you describe the model in a little more detail that will illustrate why this cl- why this is a, falls under the rubric of deep learning? Sure. So we have a number of different neural network architectures, but in each we've highly parameterized how the architecture is set up. So part of the hyperparameter tuning process is determining, for example, how many layers, how many stacks do you want to include from input to output. So one of our best performing networks can be characterized as a temporal convolutional neural network. And in a convolutional neural network, you tend to stack convolution and activation layers. So what we do is when we do the hyperparameter tuning of this neural network, we're finding the optimal number of layers such that we're neither underfitting nor overfitting the training data. What's the process of training a what was it called? Tem- temporal, temporal. <laughs> That's right. Temporal convolutional neural network. So, so we've done some shows about like the tr- process of training image recognition neural nets, and there's a there's a the convolutional step where you're you're creating these different rotations over an image to understand the image kind of from different angles, I guess, is is a way of looking at it. You're rotating this matrix. So when you're doing a temporal convolutional neural network, is that like looking at different time windows? Yeah, sorry for the jargon. All that really means is the only difference between image recognition and what we use it for in in time series forecasting is that in image recognition, you're defining a two-dimensional kernel that you're sliding over uh, the pixels of your image. So you may define a kernel to be maybe five pixels by five pixels. And then the, the weight corresponding to each one of those pixel values is consistent as you slide it across the image. In time series forecasting, the only difference is rather than being a, a two-dimensional kernel, you're talking about a one-dimensional kernel. So what we're saying is that this is one of the mechanisms that prevents overfitting to the training data is that uh, because the weights have to be consistent within uh, a layer, within a filter, that when you find the optimal weights that say, for example, interconnector flow is an important feature at a given time, you should anticipate that same explanatory feature will be valuable at the next interval. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. Um, to a very limited degree for me. I mean, I've I've had a lot of trouble covering deep learning algorithms on this show. I think there's other podcasts that are actually much better at this than I am. I've just found that it's not a domain that I I can explain well over a podcast, or maybe it's just because I don't understand it, to be honest. But I do understand data infrastructure to some degree. Are you using any streaming systems or using Apache Spark or Flink? 
Are you using streaming systems for anything? No, not at this time. So the, basically the UI, just it, does it read directly from a TensorFlow model? So we do have ETL processes that uh, kick off as new market data becomes available. And then our forecasts are persisted in our SIL database. That data is then easily served by our API, which serves uh, many of our applications internally. Okay. So what's the interface like for a trader that is working with these models? So I think the most important view for a trader is the resulting bid. Uh, so that is how much energy are we allocating at each price band for the upcoming day? Uh, so they're, they're typically looking at what you might imagine to be like an Excel table of prices and quantities. But they're also looking at, in our forecast view, what is the probability of prices spiking above a particular threshold, as well as ensuring that the, the price forecasts are greater than their marginal cost to produce electricity. Now, what if you had a new data set that you got your hands on and you wanted to integrate the new data set into your models? How would you integrate a new data set into an existing model? So we typically wouldn't integrate it into an existing model, but we might kick off a new training job that uh, we do have a fairly extensible framework for defining named feature sets that uh, the model can then uh, access. So it would be essentially building a new data stream, incorporating it in the data pre-processing step, and then referencing it in the neural network construction. And what's your process for testing out new data sets? I mean, there there must be, there's so many data sets you could have available to you. And some of them are just going to add unnecessary noise. They aren't going to really get you any mileage. But other things probably would be extremely valuable. What's your system for testing new data sets? Yeah, I guess an additional point is that for each market that we operate in, the, the nature of the data that is available to us also varies. So we have a very rich data set in Australia because they, they make available most of their, their market data, including their own forecasts for electricity prices. That's fairly uncommon in the United States. So it is important that we have a robust test framework that allows data scientists internally to leverage existing architectures and deployment processes and quickly experiment on on a new feature. So what that might look like is uh, a data scientist identifies a feature in our feature store and then can quickly point to that feature as part of the data pre-processing step to include it uh, in this, this aggregated data set that we then feed to the model. So, so are you saying there really is not that much data uh, out there? There's not very many data sources that are at least publicly available that would be potentially useful for you? Uh, it depends on the market, but we do have an experimentation framework that allows fairly rapid iteration. So it, the, the majority of the time is going to be in training the neural network and not so much the, the pre-processing of a new data stream. So it's, it's then fairly easy to say, okay, based on the validation error that we calculate, uh, did we see an improvement in accuracy? If not, then um, we'll disregard that feature in, in future training. Let's take a, a bit of a step back here and think about the broader energy market. I think you've alluded to the fact that the market for renewables has changed the world of energy trading. C- can you just give a little bit more context for what's going on in the broader market and how that's impacting what you are building at AMS? Absolutely. So in California in particular, and and this is true uh, in other parts, other markets in the world as well, the amount of intermittent penetration has dramatically changed the supply stack 
and this has shifted where energy and when energy is needed. So we commonly refer to uh, the duck curve in California, um, the resulting curve. You could imagine peak consumption prior to uh, solar energy's uh, solar generation's penetration as having the, the a peak occurring in the afternoon. Now that there's so much solar on the grid, the actual peak consumption tends to occur at two points, when the sun is first coming up and when it's coming down. So in the middle of the afternoon, when solar generation is at its highest, the grid actually has surplus energy at some times. So what we're finding is that there's an increased need for energy storage to balance out both over-generation and under-generation to get a more consistent load throughout the day. Does this have any meaningful impact on climate change, like you know, reducing energy usage such that climate change will be improved? We sure hope so. I mean, <laughs> I guess I think that's what... Uh, you know, every environmentalist is hoping that you know renewable energy sources will will help that. Only time will tell them. Energy storage is synergistic with green energy uh, generation as well, so it makes the generation storage projects more economical when you have the ability to to store, say, uh, peak spikes in wind generation as well as over generation by solar. Tell me a little bit about the business when you're trying to find a new customer for AMS or convince a new customer or describe your go-to-market strategy? On the energy trading side, we look for, you know, customers with various energy assets that can pretty much benefit from better price bidding. And that's pretty much everyone. Um, you know, with that, we offer, you know, it's a pretty simple pricing model where, you know, there is a standard licensing fee and then there's also a performance incentive for us if we perform above a certain level. So it's almost a win-win for the customer where I have this asset you know, I'm using some more archaic ways of uh, predicting prices and spreadsheets and doing some complex calculations that I have to do manually. You know, if I can get a software application to do that for me and get, you know, better bids out and make more money, uh, why would I not do so? And the, the recurring fee is is fairly low. Uh, we actually make a lot of money off of performance incentives above the line too. So it just shows that we're confident that our, our forecasting and optimization abilities are pretty good. Can you use the platform to make your own trades? No, we can't and we don't. We actually don't want to. Um, in, in some cases, well, we think if we do, then it becomes a conflict of interest of you know what mm. we're providing to our customers. Yeah. Is, is that consistent across the industry, like companies that make software for traders they can't also use it to trade themselves? That's a good question. Do you know, Corey? I believe that's at least valid in the financial industry. Well, let's talk a little bit about the about the future. What are you working on at AMS right now? What are the projections for how the software infrastructure is going to change in the near future? Uh, we're really just focused on the resiliency of our platform. These are markets that operate 24 hours a day. So ensuring uptime for our customers is critical. On the algorithmic front, we're starting to look into new techniques for agent-based learning. So typical workflow might include or process flow might include forecasting and then an optimization, a stochastic optimization that takes into account market volatility. I think what, what's really interesting in an avenue that we're currently pursuing is in reinforcement learning. So teaching an agent to respond to a stochastic environment and choose a set of actions that maximize expected revenue for that asset owner. Very cool. Min, anything you want to add? In addition to that, you know, we're also expanding our trading platform to additional markets. 
We have, we're working on Australia um, and California right now. Um, and then we have UK roadmap for later this year. We're also, you know, heavily looking into which other markets uh, should we get into next. Okay, guys. Well, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Wow.